play technician here. Yeah. Thank nope. you very much. We're all good, actually. So um... it's time for the Access of Easy podcast. We're here today, rolling on July 8th. Wow. Okay, I'll do a quick intro. Hey, everybody. It is Mark Jeftovic here on the Access of Easy Salon. This is number 44, and it's been a while since we've had one of these. Today, we have uh, Charles Hugh Smith joining us from Hawaii, and we have a guest today, Max Borders, who is the author of The Social Singularity. That was the book that I discovered him through. It's how decentralization will allow us to transcend politics, create global prosperity, and avoid the robot apocalypse. Right now, we're working on the audiobook of his follow-up book called After Collapse, The End of America and the Rebirth of Her Ideals. And I didn't realize you co-wrote a book with Jeffrey Tucker, who I always like, um, 99 Ways to Leave the Leviathan, and that you were uh, like a content editor at FEE, Foundation for Economic Education. So uh, that's all great. Uh, all outlets I, I go to a lot. And I'm Mark Jeftovic in the West End of Toronto, and this is the Access of Easy Salon number 44. So, um, where to start today? So, you know, I, I, I came across your work, Max, uh, and thanks for coming on. It was, um, I was researching the singularity it's itself like the technological singularity and anyone who's been following our stuff here for a while knows I'm, I'm, I come from the, te- I come at the technological singularity from a completely different angle. I'm quite skeptical about it. I don't think we will ever achieve wide AI and I don't believe that we're going to have this technological breakthrough that is going to solve all our problems. And you actually touch on that in, in after collapse because you're talking about, uh, fully automated luxury communism, which for me is, um, you know, the, the singularity is near for Marxists. And it's the sort of right. same assumption where instead of premising scarcity that Marxism does, it's, it premises abundance and, you know, a, singular, a singularity type breakthrough. But so I found because of the title, your book, Social Singularity, and I started reading it and it, it seemed completely different than than the other connotations of singularity and you have that website socialevolution.com we'll put links to that in the show notes and i found i recognized the name of someone on your board colin pape a shout out to colin from presearch.io the decentralized search engine and so he introduced us and we started talking and we've been talking ever since and um I actually don't know exactly where to start other than, um, you know, why don't you talk to us a little bit about sort of, I have some notes to touch on because there's a lot of overlap between what you've been doing, it feels like, and what we've been talking about here. I mean, here we're about decentralization. We think that the, the old narratives of left versus right, conservative versus liberal, that sort of thing, we think those are sort of like 
past their use-by date and that the, the, the modern tensions going forward are between centralization and decentralization. One thing we talk about a lot, protocols versus platforms, uh, so that you have like an open source protocol versus a closed algorithmic black box platform. And, and that's where we see the kind of um, dynamics and tensions these days. And, and so it just feels like some of the things you're talking about with DISC and um, the synthesis movement and all that sort of thing seems to have a lot of overlap with us. There's a lot there. I don't want to just dump it all in your lap and say go, but... Um, why don't you give us a little bit of an intro on the background for people who may not have read your stuff yet, and we can sort of take it from there. Is that okay with yeah. you, Charles? Okay. Great, great. And and look, I mean, there's a lot of material here in, in two books. And the second book is twice the size of the first book. Um, so it's... It, it, it's I think really about finding common themes and I, you, you, you put you put the point on that very well. One of the common things I think uh, we can talk about is decentralization. Uh, what are the benefits and downsides of decentralization? I think there's tremendous upside. Um, I do I don't want to be uh, you know too sanguine about decentralization, you know because it does have its limits, particularly locally sometimes. but at the same time, uh, we are nowhere near reaping the fruits of decentralization in terms of uh, mass-scale society. So that's one thing. Uh, another thing is, uh, if you, you know, most of the world tribalizes along this this you know two-dimensional axis of left versus right, which is so crude and inapt for what we really need to be talking about. And it can it can go this way, which is, you might think of it as liberal versus illiberal. And when I say liberal, I'm not talking about something that a conservative talk radio person would deride or sneer at. I'm talking about the idea that freedom, in some sense, lights our world. Okay, that it um, that it leads the way to all kinds of experimentation and good things, and you know, people being productive and entrepreneurial and this and that. So, you know, I'm a generally speaking, I'm a liberal. I mean, uh, I, I'm a liberal. Of, in the Millian sense, a John Stuart Mill, of, about uh, free free speech and expression, and in the spirit of that, as well as the letter, at least in the U.S., that tenuously clings to a First Amendment. Um, I am also a liberal with respect to um, you know the idea that how far can we push the idea of consent-based societies rather than compulsory societies. Um, you know, acknowledging and understanding all the problems of collective action and, and all of the problems where we need near unanimity in order to make some sort of single decision about something en masse, um, I tend to think that we should pull back from this unitary decision-making model where bureaucracies decide some sort of policy monolith that gets stuck in amber through time. And... And instead, we have modes of experimentation with our governance. And this, this, this is a, a repeating motif in, in my work, whether it's in the social singularity, um, where I talk more about systems that allow for reducing the costs of exit in any given system. So, you know, it might be more beneficial to, um, if you uh, live in Honduras, to step over the border and uh, go onto the island of Roatan now. It has different institutional matrix. Uh, because of the special economic zone that's just been established there. It might be better for the mainland 
uh, Chinese to find their way to Hong Kong. And of course, the mainland Chinese are now, Beijing is trying to suppress the beautiful, organic, bottom-up nature of Hong Kong. So I am a liberal, an unabashed liberal, and I will stand behind that. And um, and I, what I try to do is not sound so doctrinaire about why I'm a liberal, uh, but give good reasons why liberal systems work better, but also how we can incorporate this idea in the second book. You'll see one of the through lines is more to do with moral practice, uh, where you have a conscious, conscious, continuous practice of of different liberal ideas rather than just these bare abstract rules we got in the Enlightenment. So there's a lot of fodder here, a lot of things to talk about. And um, uh, I think those are general through lines you'll find throughout my work. Taking it to that level of abstraction can be boring to some people, but, uh, but getting into some of the details and anecdotes and examples can make it more interesting. So I'm happy to do that. Yeah, Mark, can I, can I uh, bust my, in here? Be my well, guest, yeah. I'm fascinated, Max, by your um, evocation of, uh, of a moral foundation. And of course, um, those of us who are junkies for, you know, politics, geopolitics, history. Um, so I'm going to kind of use Peter Turchin, right? Um, the mm -hmm. historian. His, his thing um, is that there's cycles of history, and these are basically uh, manifestations of human desire uh, to cooperate and then um, to find reasons not to cooperate. And, and so I, I'm curious what you would um, say about uh, your response to that. And, and I, um, with this thought in mind, which is, I would interpret Turchin's work partly as, is there a moral foundation that people can share, a, a value system, which would then lend itself to increasing cooperation? Or is there a fragmentation of the value system and of course, in, in, in the history circles, there's a lot of uh, debate about the fact that um, that Americans, uh, the, the founding of America was based on, you know, Christian ideals, even if the founding fathers like Jefferson and, and Adams were not doctrinaire Christians. Um, and that as, if that's been lost, then what is the new foundation that we can build on um, in terms of finding common values and a, and a moral foundation? Thank, yeah. Um, I, I want to say with humility, I'm familiar with uh, Peter Turchin's work, um, uh, but only in a cursory way. And uh, so I may not have done the kind of deep dive that you have. However, I will say that I'm, I'm impressed by understanding history through the lens of patterns of cooperation and lack of cooperation. We have this sort of state of affairs. So, you know, we can talk about that in parallel, but we, de we definitely have a state of affairs where you have these sort of macro periods of history that evolved, uh, that evolved and, uh, and they are evolutionary phenomena. You know, even though we might plan a society from the top down uh, by virtue of, uh, you know, largesse or dirigisme, as the French call it, where, you know, you, you're really trying to, you know, make, the, make these sort of this Byzantine regulatory framework and, you're, you know, issuing edicts and doing very much what the Roman Empire did or or any other subsequent uh, uh, mode of rule that was was highly hierarchical in nature. So there was more top down than bottom up. OK, but 
we can go back to, um, and I'm curious to see if there are parallels between Turchin and uh, James C. Scott in this regard. James C. Scott talked about this idea of the that the proto-states were a an artifact of what is called a protection racket these days. In other words, the mafia comes by and says, we're going to give you an offer you can't refuse. There's going to be other big, strong uh, MFs like me who come along, right? And I'm going to protect you from them. But in exchange, you're going to have to give me a little bit of your grain. So keep in mind, this is all, you know, the Age of Empires is corresponds, is a lagging indicator of the age of the age of agriculture, settled agriculture. So all of a sudden we have these proto-states that are basically these big, smart, smart, big brigands that come along and eventually become clan kings. So the protection racket gets formalized and grow into empires. This is an evolutionary phenomenon. So in that sense, in that sort of, uh, you might call it a bizarre game theoretical scenarios that work to, you know, this strange relationship, there is a kind of cooperation there. But the cooperation is one that requires the subordination of the many by the few, by the clan king initially, and by the imperial rulers, governors, satraps, whatever, uh, as this grows. It's become so ensconced and ingrained that we now have, you know, we have how this Hobbesian rationale extends to almost everything under the sun. And so these shoots of possibility, these these little bits of entrepreneurship and and like look desiring to change or try different rule sets is very difficult to do because all the landmass on Earth has essentially been taken over through conquest. And so we're now entering an era of commercial exchange of collaboration and where those collaborative exchanges, um, you know, when we see this throughout history, this is not just more recent in the Industrial Revolution. We see all throughout the Mediterranean region, the, the emergent law, the law merchant that sprang up so that all of these traders could appeal to something that they agreed together was was a law of merchants um, that weren't heavily dependent on these hierarchical powers around them. In fact, they eschewed them in many respects. All of this is to say, we can get totally in the weeds on this, but all of this is to say that these evolved structures are, were operating in parallel, but the hierarchical powers, the ones that use sticks instead of carrots, have prevailed for a very, very long time. And we're only now seeing glimpses of possibility where a different kind of order can emerge um, that's been this, this sort of... The, the shoots of possibility that have come up through emergence are only now able to happen despite the existence of comprehensive Leviathan powers around the earth. And I can explain why I think that's the case in a moment, but, um, but that, is, that is a very hopeful suggestion and we may see the world get much more totalitarian before it gets better. That's interesting. What, there's a couple of things I wanted to hit on there, but the, the, one of the last things you talked about is that how this is essentially throughout history a power structure, like raw power. And one of the big books for me, which I talk about in this show incessantly, is The Sovereign Individual by um, James Dale Davidson and Lord Rees-Moggs. And 
there's been um, sort of a reboot to that book by James Breedlove. Um, I actually, the name escapes me, but he was the one for me who 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 really illuminated the difference that um, cryptography, public key cryptography, made to the decentralization movement and to the fact that it takes more energy to break um, encryption than it does to encrypt something. And that, that by itself completely changes the nature of power going forward in history. Um, by the way, by, by the way, not, not to interrupt you. No, no, go I, ahead. I, I would love to, to, to drop in your show notes or to, to give your, to give your listeners a, an article I just wrote for the Cato Institute called uh it's just called crypto anarchism okay don't be frightened away by the, the word anarchism um it's it's very much a nod to the the public key cryptography movement in the 80s and 90s uh the the the, the cypherpunk movement and what is that is enabled up to this point so sorry go ahead no not at all that's fine um i mean I, my joke about anarchy I wanted to name, before this was called Access of Easy and I had the idea for sort of a media outlet, I was going to call it anarchy.tv because uh, I have that <laughs> domain name. And the, the, the slogan was always going to be anarchy, people say it like it's a bad thing. Now, of course, I mean anarchy <laughs> in the crypto, uh, you know, crypto anarchy or the uh, anarcho-capitalist sense of the word, not in the, you know, burn it all down sense of the word. Right. But... Um, you're talking about, you had me wondering when we were, when you were thinking about order imposed from the top down, that, that how often does that really successfully happen throughout history? And if you look at the, if you look at the tides, it almost feels to me like you get this bottom up sort of, you get this, um, ad hocness that gets formalized into networks. I mean, what you were talking about was, you know, the protection racket that comes out of the proto-states. I mean, that's Murray Rothbard, anatomy of the state right there um, in a sentence. And then, and this happens kind of, do I want to use the word organically, naturally? Okay, whatever. You get up there and then finally you have this ensconced, established orthodoxy in state that then wants to take the future, like we are now, from now on, we are planning everything from here down, okay? We spent yeah. the last several millennia or generations or centuries rising from the bottom up. We've come up through these these steps of formalism and, and, and emergence. Now that we're here, we're going to impose what happens from the future on out, on down. It's something we've talked about in prior prior. Uh, shows that when we talk about things like the Great Reset and the New Normal, we don't do it with our tinfoil hats and conspiracy theory uh, garbs on. We talk about it in the sense of like it's more of a dynamic than a conspiracy. It's people who have positions of power and influence and um, um, privilege now just want to retain those positions so they're trying to uh, they're trying to add their weight to dynamics that will perpetuate that and a long-winded way of saying once you get to that stage is that sort of the the almost the overshoot is that like the ringing the bell at the top that now you have this seemingly unassailable all-pervasive power structure state 
500 years ago it was the church now it's like these these national governments and post-national apparatuses that are saying okay we've got everything under control this is how it's going to go and that is basically the one way that things are not going to go because you know the world is truly rudderless at the end of the day and it reminds me of um uh, um we talked about this i think in the last episode charles pareto like Everyone thinks of Pareto and the 80-20 principle, and I didn't realize how much work he did on rotations of elites, right? So when elites and non-elite wealthy start to come into conflict with each other, it starts to create that rotation out and that sort of disenfranchisement with the establishment and the elite system. And, uh, and that's when things start to give way to the next, whatever the next system's gonna be. And I think, I don't know if I talked about it in the preamble today, but we talk about nation states versus network states. We don't know what network states are going to look like, but we just that's just kind of a label we put on it. I think we started to differentiate between network states and crypto states. Like we think about a network state more like a Facebook or a Google because they're becoming as powerful and formalized as nation states, whereas crypto states are kind of more... I think the phrase Charles came up with, Hanseatic League, almost like a new Hanseatic League. They're sort of like, like DAOs and decentralized sort of um, organizations. And uh, I guess my main point there is, is this sort of ubiquitous, um, ostensibly all-powerful nation-state that wants to that gets bigger every day and wants to control everything kind of a ringing the bell at the end of an era to say okay this this model of governance has run as far as it's going to go and whether they want to or not we're going to move into something else you know i wish i could say definitively that i know okay and i'll and i'll tell you some of the the, the hubris that was involved in both books, and I readily admit it because I want it to be a foregone conclusion. I want it to be a, you know, I want my optimism to to create a a a um, a, the, a, a state of affairs that inspires others in some way to make it so. But I can't say whether or not it's going to be. And uh, and let me tell you why. Um, the 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 trope behind the social singularity. The 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 idea behind the, the technological singularities, of course, you can extrapolate into the future with processing power. And at some point, you know, um, you know, depending on depending on how you uh, define intelligence and sentience, the robots are going to wake up or they're going to they're going to become smarter than we are. And they're going to have their own agency and it's going to be difficult to put the genie back in the bottle. OK, so I, I, I use that to say that there's this parallel process of human lateralization. In other words, what we're doing right now is permissionless and connected and we're creating something we're co-creating something even if it's just a podcast this lateralization is proceeding and now with distributed ledgers now with blockchain now with whatever you like holo chain um, all manner of different distributed ledger type systems uh, and use the use of cryptography and the protection of privacy in doing so we have now this possibility that the genie can't be put back into the bottle in terms of the way we lateralize our relationships with each other. In other words, there will be a theoretical point beyond which, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, these top-down governments won't be able to uh, control the behavior of the agents in the system anymore 
through sticks or carrots because we're, we're going to be programming our own incentives through this. And this is, and by the way, the, the, the sovereign individual was so far ahead of its time. It's just a, a magnificent. When someone told me that my book reminded them of that book, I had to know what it was. And then I went and saw it and I said, damn it, these guys were way ahead of me. Bless them. You know what I mean? So huge respect for that book. Um, but here's where I'm concerned. Here's where I'm deeply concerned. And this, is, this goes directly to your question. Um, the same processes, you know, technological processes that allow us to lateralize our relationships and form consent based communities and different kinds of mutual aid structures and whatever you can imagine in this brave new world of decentralized uh, technological means. The same kind of tools are going to be available to to power. OK, to the powerful, not only the powerful in collusion, the, 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 the powerful moneyed interest in collusion with the powerful people with standing armies in a police state. Um, but the, the, the tools that they are going to be able to use for all manner of things from architecting surveillance to creating social credit systems to locking us into some sort of currency matrix. All of these things are happening. They're happening in parallel with our lateralization. Um, my hope is that there is an outpacing that happens, that the people who are the coders and geeks who are working in the crypto space operate quickly enough to to, to the, that there's such that uh, Pandora's box can't be closed again. Maybe that's not a good metaphor. Uh, the genie couldn't be put back in the bottle because it's already granting our wishes, our and our and our, uh, our crypto anarchist wishes, I guess you could say. Um, but we have to be careful about how power is adopting a technology too, and those technological means are also very powerful, and people. The pandemic showed me, and I was writing the book, the, the second book during the pandemic, and th that, that being gripped by fear that happens with people makes them so, that submission instinct comes over them. You see it, you see it head down, trust the experts, yeah. trust the authorities, we must do this together. They become like zombies that abandon their critical thinking skills and abandon their relish, their zeal for freedom and for experimentation the very freedom and experimentation that we needed to better combat the pandemic, much less understand it and have collective intelligence in the face of it. It's just this very deferential and submission instinct that comes over people en masse during, during problems, especially when those problems are magnified and fomented in the media. So to the extent that we can use technological means to combat those phenomena, amen, that's great. But to the extent that we cannot, these are, this is an opportunity for the powerful to get the herds back in line. Um, yeah. Charles, let me just jump in one second before you come in. So the way you were describing that, when this all started, I remember saying to my wife, People are scared. They're panicking. It's like there's a boot on their heads pushing it underwater. The whole society. They will do anything. They will agree to anything. They will accept anything to get that boot lifted. Like just, just, just put it back to normal. Just do whatever you have to do to make everything like it was yesterday. 
we'll do it. And, and I didn't, had no idea how bad it would get. I didn't realize it was going to go on for two years. Uh, so yeah, and, and it was one of the Huxleys, and I can't remember if it was Aldous or Julian, probably Aldous, who said, if a, if a technologically enabled dictatorship is ever takes hold, we'll never be able to get out of it. I'm a little more optimistic about it because one of the things that you say, I'm more skeptical of the, um, the powers ascribed to artificial intelligence. I call it, I call AI, uh, I forget what I called it. It was algorithmic imitation. That's my, that's my label for AI. I won't go into the reasons why it's kind of a bit of a thing, but it will be able to compute faster. It will be able to crunch data faster. But I actually think this lateralization that you're talking about, I guess that's what you that's your social singularity. I think that will outpace uh, anything algorithmic and anything bureaucratic and anything technocratic. I, but something you did say earlier on, this gets worse before it gets better. I completely believe that because I think more more individual nodes have to be so disenfranchised that they want to go to the opt-out mode to say, okay, this is no longer really serving my interests or, or I can't be morally on side with this, so I've got I've to quit this program somehow. But Charles. <clears throat> what, well, Max, maybe you want to respond to that. I mean, I don't want to... I'm happy to. Um, I, I, I tend to agree. I mean... That is, that is, in essence, the thesis of these books, um, you know, with the first being the emphasis more on systems and the second being the emphasis on the kind of diagnostic for how the breakdown of, at least in my country, the American society is breaking down and the moral order is breaking down along with it. Um, but I also agree with you guys, and, but it is, it is a, an optimistic bias. I mean, there's no guarantees in this world I think uh, an another thing that, that to your point, Mark, that um, that this is likely to outpace the bureaucratic model is also that complexity, you know, the nature of complex systems is such that hierarchies break down. They suffer from information problems and scaling problems that these new systems may not suffer from. So that the extent to which you can jump around in them and operate in them and, and allow them to to work in more like a hive mind fashion, either separately or in unitary fashion, and and turn that on and off with real agents operating in those systems um, through the power of programmable incentives, through the power, power of just human ingenuity and human agency is heartening to me because those systems don't suffer from the, the same kinds of problems that bureaucracies do and hierarchies do. So that's another thing that lets me say, in certain contexts, yeah, hierarchies are hierarchies are powerful entities, uh, particularly in the historical past, when the, in the age before public key cryptography. These days, it's more of an issue of um, that we're now in that world, and we're seeing this beautiful unfolding of waves of technological innovation and people opting into systems uh, with uh, and able to sort of protect their capital, protect their privacy. It's not to say that there's no, no way to infiltrate these systems by agents of the state and hierarchies and be made example of and get thrown in jail and scare the shit out of people till they, you know, hand over their private keys or whatever they have to do. There's no telling. But um, 
I am hopeful with you. I just, I think it, it, it here, here's a, here's an object lesson. Let's see what you guys think about this. I mean, it's, it's kind of become a cliche, but here's a, 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 the way I, I kind of think of it. And I want to credit a friend of mine named uh, Carl Oberg for first coming up with this, um, or at least articulating it to me. I, I feel like it, it was sort of intuitive in my mind, but I didn't articulate it quite this way. There's this phenomenon. You can look up this old. He's an old lefty economist, but he had, but he has really great ideas. Uh, named Manster Olson. I don't know if you've ever heard of Manster Olson, but the idea was the the seminal idea from Manster Olson is that there's a slow decay of civilization that happens by virtue of this process called concentrated benefits dispersed costs. Okay, so when you have any kind of government republic, you're going to have special interests that lobby that the powerful in order to get special favors. And the rest of society has very little incentive or knowledge to try to combat that process. So what happens is, is that the benefits are concentrated on these few favor seekers or, or special interests and they begin to collude more and more with the government and it forms this this is almost like accretion disks this weight of dead weight loss for all of these special interests they're buying the regulations they're ensuring the regulations come into place because it you know it harms their competitors they're getting subsidies they're getting all kinds of stuff and it just builds and builds and builds uh you know they're getting they're, they're getting all of this stuff that creates no real value in society in the meantime, the voters, the electorate, the peons, the laity, they're not, they don't know what's going on. I mean, most people don't know what a mohair subsidy is. Much Mohair is much less a mohair subsidy, right? But there's been one on the book since some war, World War I or World War II, because soldiers had to wear wool, wool coats. In any case, these things... They, they stack up and you get this phenomenon of concentrated benefits dispersed cost. Mansur Olson was basically saying this is one of the decay processes in, or the, in the slow corruption of, of civilizations. Now, what's interesting is along about 2012, 2013, this fantastic entrepreneur came along and decided to operate in a legal gray area. And that legal gray area, at least in where I, where I come from, is one where it's like you're not you probably it was probably illegal in most U United States to give somebody a ride to pick them up and hitch a ride because they you know they thought it was dangerous they were unaccountable all this stuff then all of a sudden about tw 2012 2013 this company comes along and says hey we can actually track that with GPS connect you by your apps your identities associated with it we saw we solve all this problems of safety all of a sudden it's not clear whether they're breaking the law or not and um, they're not taxis, they're something else. So there's no restrictions on taxi medallions, which is a cartel. And all of a sudden you had this mass constituencies of people who really loved the service because they were cheaper than cabs. They could get anywhere. They, you know, drunk driving incidents go way down. All of these wonderful blessings and benefits happen. Then the regulators, the taxi medallion, uh, monopolies and cartels, of course, started to fight, started to lobby the government. We got to stop this. They've got to have the same regulations that we do. 
It's the same game that we play, the concentrated benefits, dispersed cost, only this time the script was flipped. And that is to say you had concentrated costs of enforcement and the benefits were extended far and wide. And that that inversion of concentrated benefits to, and dispersed costs to concentrated enforcement and, defer, and dispersed benefits means you had this massive constituency of millions saying, give us our Uber back or you're going to be out of office and fast. My hope is that that rationale extends to so many other things in our lives besides Uber with technological means that that bring mass adoption. The cryptocurrency space is showing evidence of a Metcalf's law kind of phenomenon um, where the, the adoption of, Met, uh, of uh, you know, the, the value of a given cryptocurrency token is roughly, you know, um, tracks with the number of wallets on the network and the number of, of transactions and so on. You can start to get this rough estimate of, of, of whether or not something is valuable, worth investing in. People, of course, criticize Metcalf's law. It's just a heuristic. But the basic idea is there. And I think the more of these kind of peer-to-peer -peer network architectures we develop and people opt into them and massive constituencies are benefiting from these systems, it's going to be harder and harder for these state proxies and these special interests to come back. Um, but there again, after what we saw with the pandemic, all they have to do is scare up a crisis and everybody goes. So not clear. My hope, though, is that that process inverts and that we continue to get the growth of this lateralization and the social singularity can proceed. Mark, can I jump in here? Be my guest. Um, you know, Max, um, a lot of uh, what I've been thinking about recently is that all uh, system structures, whether you whether, as you're saying, emergent or, or hierarchical, they all arose as a problem solving structure. They solve some major problem. Right. They're a problem solving structure. That's why they um, succeeded. And that's the evolutionary sort of process you mentioned. And so <clears throat> I think how I contextualize what you guys are talking about in terms of hope is that the um, concentrated uh, power hierarchy uh, is just no longer a problem solving structure. It's actually the problem itself. And there's other authors who've written about this, right? Like um, the upside of down, you know, um, where uh, the, the complex, the, all the books about how complex societies become so costly, you know, this, this concentration of costs that um, they just stop being a solution and then there's, they're, they're replaced by a better solution. And so I want to ask you to talk a little bit about your book after collapse, because the title alone um, guarantees um, a lot of great um, insight into this exact, uh, you know, dynamic we're talking about where the cost structure that used to be a, a solution becomes so um, uh, dis, you know, dysfunctional. Either it's too expensive, it's too complicated, and it's no longer distributing sufficient um, benefits to, to work for the public. And, and so um, I'd like to ask you to speak to that as a sort of hopeful side of after collapse. And, and we, I'm sure it's going to be easy to kind of tie together what we've, what we've been talking about here. Sure. I think, I mean, the, the book is, is basically uh, laid out in two parts. Um, so I'll start there. The first part being 
a seven chapter diagnostic with each chapter representing some vector of breakdown. Okay. So whether it is the breakdown of our, our, our mutual aid, the breakdown of our collective intelligence, that is the way we know things together, uh, the breakdown of our belief in the liberal order, um, which, you know, makes me sound like a good old Jeffersonian. And I kind of am, um, you know, I think Jeffersonian had his anarchist instincts too. You know, he believed in the consent, consent of the governed. And he, he was very, very clear about that, particularly later in life after his presidency, when he'd seen the temptation of power. <clears throat> um, um, sorry about my, you know, sort of rah-rah American patriotism there for the founding fathers, but I think that the enlightenment thinkers that informed the, the, the American founders had some really interesting uh, and profound timeless things to say whose rationale can be extended um, into, into the, um... sorry, are you guys still there? Yeah, we're here. Sorry, I had something interrupt me on the screen, okay. and I apologize for that. I was just um, going to interrupt you briefly anyway, not yeah. because what you're talking about, that is those founding father ideals are yeah. valued outside of America. I was just thinking of a podcast I did with a British guy named John Lillywhite coming out in August from the policy blog in England. And he did his master's thesis on governance and, and he talked about, and we talked about the, 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 um, the forward thinking and the, the acumen of the founding fathers as contrast to like the French Revolution, which happened at around the same time. And that was kind of almost more of a shit show by maybe implementation. But so you're not being, I don't think you're being ethnocentric or patriotic to say, you know, these ideals were great ideals. And even the whole um, federalist, anti-federalist dynamic between it, like of, of what came out of that, those are all valuable, timeless kind of um, conversations and, and, and um, themes of, of history and governance. So... Well, and absolutely. Look, I mean, I, you know, we could talk probably for another hour on on the, you know, the sort of the notion of Quebecois cultural determination, self-determination. Um, the fact that people in, in some neighboring neighboring province don't want to have the shitty high taxes of, you know, of uh, of Quebec. We can talk about, you know, well, um, all the provinces are like that, but continue. Yeah, well. <laughs> Well, and, and, and Alberta's, you know, you know, their energy industry and so on. I mean, it's like there, there, there's so many, you know, this this distinct pluralism that is regional. It's, it's not just that it's regional. There are cultural enclaves within regions and, you know, proximity to people uh, creates cultural emergent cultural properties for a reason. You know, it's why I sound funny because I'm from the south. I can't shake it, you know, um, but it's not just that because right now with with this you know mass digitization that's gone on since the you know, early 1990s and and indeed with cryptography we are now in the cloud we are very like-minded people all three of us hopefully your listeners are too and in our ability to do something has upon its back at least some sort of moral imperative like what or at least 
questions. Why must I be subject to the rules that were set down by people on a patch of soil that I happen to be born on in conquest? You know, um, why must I, if there's an, a superior rule set that I can adopt, and not just for selfish reasons, um, for reasons, uh, you know, of pragmatism, of, of even some notion of the social good, why ought I not be able to do that? Uh, it's, it's, to me, it, it recommends a series of very powerful questions against this a sort of deference to authority and traditions of the past, even those that we might call progressive instead of conservative. So, you know, um, I start, you know, I baby. So back to the so I do the diagnostics in, in the first part of the book. And in the second part of the book, I start to lay out this case in sort of piecemeal fashion, which is not only designed to be a response to those breakdowns I uh, I talk about in part one, but are also designed to really t explain to the reader why it's important to have decentralized systems. I start with the presumption that, hey, look, if we just respected the Constitution as it's written, 90% of the things that the federal government is, is doing today that is pushing us towards collapse and insolvency just on the financial dimension would not be happening. Those would be happening at the state level. Some of those states would be having fiscal problems, and some of those states might have their own issues. Wouldn't be catastrophic because the system wouldn't be centralized. This sort of goes to the, the notion of anti-fragility or anti-fragile that is set out in uh, Taleb's books. And, you know, while Taleb can be an online asshole, he's a brilliant guy. And, you know, this idea of, anti of creating anti-fragile systems is, is very much informs uh, the, the book. So what I am essentially trying to do is, is demonstrate that these smaller enclaves of governance, this experimentation in governance systems, creates an overall order of anti-fragility, right? Because if you try something that's crappy because of your ideals or because of your whatever, if you're some sort of ideologue that just doesn't get incentives or doesn't get why something might break down, then, then you, your, your little system will collapse locally and people can jump to another system at lower cost. This creates an evolutionary fitness landscape of competition among systems. I live in the state of, of Texas, which has an, this massive influx of people from California right now. By like, it's no contest. By the hundreds of thousands that are coming here over, over the last decade. And, you know, I, I, I would... I wouldn't be surprised if 100 Californians a day are not showing up in Texas. I don't know what the numbers are, but, but you know, it's, it's easy to find. And that is because whether people not, or not people realize it, because California is such a beautiful state, is due to forces, the forces of institutional breakdown, whether locally in San Francisco, uh, where they've just basically turned it to a, a, a city of expensive shit, or... Or because of the, you know, the state's high taxes and, and sort of regulatory zeal. People are coming here, setting up their business. It's, it's gutted their middle class. So rich Californians can support it. Poor Californians don't leave. They have this massive inequality. And all their middle class is coming here and buying up homes left and right. 
which drives up the property values. But that's jurisdictional arbitrage, baby. They're living the life. They're living the Texas, the Texas dream, not the American dream, the Texas dream. And so, you know, likewise for there, this is happening all over Canada. I'm, I'm, I'm quite sure. So uh, this process is, is, is something that I think is a good process. And if we can have, if we collectively can have some sort of meta understanding of that, you could actually let that process unfold in a much more deliberate way from the top down, but that's never going to happen because the incentives aren't there for the authorities. So what's it's going to have to happen, I believe, is that the process of breakdown needs to happen so that it's it, it and these release valves and these this nicheification that's happening naturally runs its course. And that really is how we're going to build the sort of post collapse era and in you know, and it, it, it takes a lot of uh, courage. It, it took a lot of courage for me to write a book about collapse because I usually don't go in for that sort of thing. I'm very optimistic. But the more I started looking at the complexity science behind a lot of this stuff, the, the fiscal reality and debt spending that that and the inflation that's already happening and that was predicted in the book that's now happening, you know, it's it's uh, it's scary stuff. And so what I wanted to do with the book, with the title is to say there is a world after this. Let's just start looking at that. And it is kind of world that the three of us and your and your viewers probably already are starting to imagine. I mean, there's a big difference between and I think it took me a long time to realize this. And it was probably until I read Dmitry Orlov's books, who I think, you know, Charles, um, uh, reinventing collapse and the other one, which escapes me right now, but it was this realization that um, a system can collapse and civilization will carry on a pace. Like monetary systems collapse every century, every 80, 80 years. Uh, countries collapse. The Soviet Union was an entire empire that collapsed and it happened in blinding speed and no one saw it coming. And, you know, it just, these things. They can turn into Mad Max scenarios, but it doesn't mean they will have to. Um, and so that when a, when a system becomes unsustainable, it's not going to keep going just because there's no other option. If it's unsustainable, it's just going to stop. You use the word, you know, seditious. We're having a seditious conversation or something like that. And it's funny you mention that because Charles and I had a conversation, a private one. It wasn't a podcast with someone. I'll keep their name out of it because they're they're extremely private and they don't even want to be publicly acknowledged to be having these kinds of conversations but he used the same word he said this is almost like founding fathers kind of conversations it's seditious john lillywhite again said the same sort of thing he said these are the kinds of conversations that were happening in revolutionary america that this realization that the the governing system had run out of runway for lack of a better word and that um and it doesn't take a lot like you don't need a revolution really to change like it just it, it can especially today in this interconnected interconnected decentralized networked world it, we talk about it as as you know in the in the context of the great opt out like just people just start moving not even physically just 
different portions of their lives start happening on different systems and the, the state sanctioned systems just start having less and less relevance in their lives. I mean, I've said before, if Facebook, and now it'll be a when Facebook, because it looks like they're going to be permitted to come out with their currency now that it's based in the US. And I actually think Facebook's DM will be the de facto Fed coin you know, going forward. It'll at least be a temporary stand-in. But people's Facebook accounts will be more important in the day-to-day -day operations of their lives than their, than their passport, than their, than their government-issued passport as life gets more into this direction. And so the, all this to say that this, you know, it doesn't, the, the sort of like um, revolutionary turning points don't have to be um, as dynamic or, or dramatic as they have been in the past. They, it just can, it can almost happen with more of a whimper than a bang. It's just suddenly you look a generation has passed and the, the, the old regime has this much relevance instead of this much relevance in your day-to-day -day lives. And just people are using different systems and different modalities of interactions and even different monetary and financial systems. Yeah. And that's really interesting too. Um, so there's two, two threads there I, I would I hope to pick up on. The, the first is, is sort of this idea of, of sedition and and indeed you know the american founders were willing to use violence uh you know they were responding to violence and they were probably hoping to avoid it but they were also sort of saying um you know uh, you know jefferson thomas jefferson is known for saying in a letter uh the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants and that's you know that's uh, we're going to get you know. canceled off of YouTube now. But yeah, yeah. Sorry somebody always that. says we something. We quoted Jefferson. Yeah. <laughs> but look, that, the, the, thing about the, the, the thing about my book that I, that I want to mention, and this is honestly, I think, been off-putting to some people, is this idea of, um, of Satyagraha, okay, which I'm pretty sure is, um, is Sanskrit for truth force okay it's the term the, that gandhi used I, I begin with this vedic tradition in contrast so we talk about the animating ideas of the founders as being some form of liberalism right um but you know i, I wanted to appeal to the vedic traditions to say that you know what nonviolence and the practice of nonviolence is a a universal form and you can have a form of active nonviolence that is not violent. Uh, I mean, sorry, well, that's obvious. That's the definition, <laughs> but I'm saying, uh, sorry, of sedition that is nonviolent, right? That you can, that, that these continuous acts of voluntary cooperation and indeed of, of shaming power which is what Martin Luther King did and what Gandhi did. This is a power, a powerful way to, for social forces to act. So I, you know, I'm one of the through lines of the book is this complete commitment to nonviolence in all of this. Um, and I, I believe that we have to be peaceful warriors in setting this out. 
so that we can be above reproach. Now, that's not to say that I will not uh, pick up whatever weapons my dad left me last year when he died, if the day comes, to defend my home and to defend my property. And, you know, the proxies of the state start to come after come after me or my family. Of course, I'm going to defend myself. And that's that's I think anybody would. Um, but I, I definitely want to emphasize in this book, not some sort of bloodthirsty, you know, continuous rebellion idea that that, you know, smacks of that Jefferson quote, but rather this commitment to. And, and this this um, Gandhi style through line throughout the book is, is this commitment to peaceful transformation as a steady drumbeat is something that I really want to to bring across. And that is not that is not something that people, you know, necessarily get. You know, they think about fighting for their freedom and in fighting can sometimes be violent. But I am I am heartened and impressed by the Gandhis of the world who threw off the fetters of of the, of the British Raj, you know, in 19 whatever 1940s to to have a now they turned out to be this, you know, socialist, uh, you know, autarkic state that was that was really probably 40 years of, of terrible governance in India. But at the very least, we know that that British rule was was not was not uh, justifiable uh, over those over those people. And they were not wanted. So um, and, and, you know, in an age of wokeism and and, you know, critical race theory and all this other stuff, which has always been about reparations and always been about affirmative action. It's always been about, you know, uh, the transfer state. I want to, you know, move people back to the truly liberal ideas of Martin Luther King Jr. You know, and the I have a dream speech where he talks about soul force. He talks about Satyagraha, talks about nonviolence and, and about getting equality before the law and this enlightenment notions. He was merging our under, liberal understanding of the Declaration of Independence with this Gandhi Satyagraha to, to have this this beautiful synthesis of East and West for a universal system of just let leave people alone to be to peacefully co collaborate. And that goes around to to your uh, at least tangentially, uh, Charles, to your Peter Churchin's notion of the desire to collaborate. And that's what we're seeing now is I, I think we can say is a desire to peacefully collaborate, but it's also this desire to do it peacefully. Well, that, that, that's a tremendous, um, a tremendously profound uh, summary. And I really appreciate you, you doing um, that on our program because I, I think that's missed in a lot of uh, culture. And of course, um, Gandhi was inspired by Thoreau <laughs> <laughs> uh, amongst many other things. So there's an American tradition of that too. And, and of course, the state would love nothing better than to have a violent uprising that it could suppress with its superior power. And it, so that's really a losing strategy on top of everything else. Um, and so I know we've kind of run out of time. I, uh, we may have to do a second show at some point so I can get your thoughts on degrowth. You know, that the transition I'm looking at is between the from the waste is growth model of the more we squander, 
the, the better that is to, you know, some system that incentivizes efficiency. And I think I, I see that um, in, in all of your writing. Uh, and um, I, I, that's something that's worthy of, of a discussion, too, because we've got to transfer from waste is growth to let's use our resources wisely. <laughs> Well, exactly. And I think, you know, this Keynesian model of let's let's uh, let's prime the pump with with, you know, um, consumerism, basically, let's let's use government largesse to to stimulate the economy through consumerism, through fiscal policy or monetary policy, whatever is is a dead letter. Um, but also at, at, at the, the I was really impressed. Um, may, maybe you guys collaborated on this or have talked about this a lot. I'm sure with doing this, you get some mind meld. But Mark, you had a really interesting piece that you allowed me read before to read before publication. And part of it was about, um, you know, uh, the application, changing the institutions, the rules and our our cultural mindset around long term thinking. Uh, with respect to corporate governance rather than short-term thinking. So there's this definitely ephemeralization process that happens because greedy capitalists do not want to waste. They want to, you know, have the bottom line. So there's ephemeralization, substitution, and they want to get leaner and meaner to to pad their bottom line. But there's also got to be this long-term long-term value creation mindset and I was really impressed, Mark, by your articulation of that. But I'm happy to come back another time and talk about those subjects because they, they, you know, corporate governance is another interesting aspect of this. And I actually believe that one of the one of the catalysts for these kinds of revolutions is to demonstrate that they can occur uh, first within our organizations. So I'm excited by that idea. Thanks, Max. The piece you're, the piece Max is referring to is the transition manifesto, which is was like the inaugural essay in my guerrilla capitalism blog, which is now bomb thrower, and I'll link to that in the show notes. This has been great, Max and Charles. It's great to see you again. And uh, Jesse couldn't be here this week. Why don't uh, we'll book another show? And Max, why don't you fill the viewers in on how to follow your work and where to find you online and that sort of thing? Yeah, well, first, I don't want you to Google me. Uh, I want you to pre-search me. <laughs> yes, um, definitely. Okay. So, you know, make sure that you, you set your browser to pre-search. Uh, let's see, is it pre-search? .io. .io. And yeah. then you can, find, you can find me through a whole bunch of different means. Um, but um, I'm happy to um, to give you my email. That's maxborders at gmail.com. That's my personal email. Um, you need a domain I'm, name. I need, I do, uh, well, I have uh, maxborders.com, and I'm not. I don't even remember what I'm doing with it. Uh, but uh, you can find you can you can contact me directly if you have any desire to. I'd be happy to, to try to get back to you in good time. I do have a, a, young, a bunch of kids. I have three kids now. One's a little baby. So sometimes it, between work and family, it can take me a while to get back, but I'm happy to. I would love for you to follow my author page on Facebook, which is uh, Max Borders. You can just search that. Um, and um, on, on Twitter, I'm at Social Evol, which is short for Social Evolution, which somebody else owned. But Social Evol. Social E-V-O-L. We're going to link to all of those in the show notes or as many of them as I can find anyway. And uh, 
That was uh, Access of Easy Salon number 44. Thanks to everyone for tuning in, and we will see you again soon, I hope. Thank you.